This Reformation audio resource is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. There is no copyright on this material, and we encourage you to reproduce it and pass it on to your friends. Many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at area code 780-450-3730, by fax at area code 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, Alberta, Canada, T6L, 3T5. If you do not have a web connection, please request a free printed catalog. The Rise and Fall of Papacy by Robert Fleming, 1701-1848 edition. Tape 4. Now besides all these things, it may be of great use to enforce this consideration, to take a view of the complexion and genius of our age, or the time wherein we live. For if the Apostle Paul, when he exhorts his contemporary Christians to redeem the time, gives this as the reason of his advice, because the days are evil, Ephesians 5.16, I am sure we have much more reason to call the days wherein we live by this name. For the sense of the Apostle when he calls the days wherein he lived evil days is no doubt this chiefly, if not only, that they were afflictive and perilous times. For times of trouble are called evil times or evil days frequently in Scripture. Genesis 47 verse 9, Psalm 77 verse 2, Amos 5 verse 13 and verse 18. But we may justly take this in a larger sense in reference to our times, for an age or time may be denominated evil either with respect to the abounding of errors, profaneness, or calamities, and upon all these accounts these days of ours may be justly said to be evil, for as to errors how many and how gross are these, how many deny the Lord that bought them, and how many oppose his divinity and satisfaction both. Yea, how many revile him as an impostor and ridicule all revealed religion. Nay, how many dare blaspheme God and deny his being and even the first principles of natural religion. And as to profaneness and immorality, where did we ever hear or read of more among Christians? Nay, it may be a question if ever the heathens were worse than most Christians are now. And again, as for calamities and troubles, we see what other churches have suffered of late and do suffer still. And we see in how tottering a condition all the Protestant interest is. And though I believe it will prove a burdensome stone to the enemies of Christ, yet how far God may suffer them to prevail for a time, none of us know. Only I am afraid we are upon the brink of very great troubles, and that, as I have hinted already, as we have been, like Israel of old, 
peculiarly blessed with mercies and privileges, and and are as peculiar and singular in sinning, so we are like to be punished in a peculiar and particular manner also. So that if there be, as sure there is, a rule to judge of the connection of mercies, sins, and judgments, we may see our case as well as that of Israel of old in the prophetical threatenings of God to that people when he says, You only have I known of all the families of the earth, therefore will I punish you for your iniquities. Amos 3 verse 2 Seeing therefore this is the state and complexion of our time, let us take heed to ourselves that we be not involved in the sins of it, lest we come under the judgments also that seem to hasten on this generation. Consider for this end the Apostle's advice. Beware, says he, lest as the serpent beguiled Eve, so your mind should be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. 2 Corinthians 11 verse 3 Let us not therefore hear the instruction that causes us to err from the words of knowledge. Proverbs 19.27 But let us beware, lest being led away with the error of the wicked, we fall from our own steadfastness. 2 Peter 3.17 But yet, be not so selfish as to mind only your own concerns, but remember that ye are members of a city, of a church, and nation, and that ye are members also of the Catholic Church of Christ that is everywhere dispersed, and therefore act as under all these ties and relations, and if you can do no more, intercede at least with God that he may be gracious. Stand in the gap, that ye may, if possible, avert his displeasure. Act, therefore, as serious, faithful, and importunate remembrancers of the Lord, giving him no rest, but crying unto him night and day until he arise, and until he make Zion and Jerusalem a praise in the whole earth. Isaiah 72, verse 6 and 7, and Luke 18, verse 7. There is yet a third consideration which I would add to the former, in order the more effectually to recommend this duty to you, that is, the improvement of your time. And this is what is indeed frequently insisted upon, but I am afraid very little lived up to, that is, that we are in the sight and under the inspection of an all-seeing God who is to be our judge at last. O oh, my friends, is this a matter only of speculation to you? Dare any of you do that in the sight of God which you would be ashamed to do in view of the world? I, rehear, I remember I have heard of an eminently holy man who, being tempted by a harlot to commit lewdness with her in a place where she was mistress and had the command, seemed to consent for the present with this condition only, that she should find out a close retirement where none could be present and see what they did. Upon which she carried him from chamber to chamber and from place to place, but he had still something to object against the privacy in every one of them. At length she brought him to a very dark and obscure corner, telling him that none could see what was done there but God and the devil. What? said he. Is that nothing? You must carry me where neither God nor the devil can see us, else I will never do what you desire. And I remember also I have heard of another, who being tempted in like manner, consented upon condition of having liberty to choose the place, which being granted he chose the public marketplace. When she refused this, saying she could not for shame do so in the open view of the world, 
He replied that he durst far less do this in the sight of God, and asked how she durst do that in the sight of God, which she was ashamed to do before men. Even the heathen moralist Seneca adviseth men to act in all things as, as if they had both God and the wisest and best of men looking on. Set Cato, Scipio, or Laelius before you, says he, or some excellent person upon whose appearing even the most wicked person would be frighted from doing amiss openly. But he adds in another place, What will it avail you to hide yourselves and your actings from men, since there is nothing concealed from God? For he looks into our breasts and is present in our very minds and hearts. And elsewhere, It avails a man nothing, says he, to shut up or stifle conscience, since everything we do lies open to God's view, and therefore our great wisdom is to act so that we may approve ourselves to him. How consonant are such expressions to the sacred standard of our holy religion, and what shall we answer to our master at that great day if we such, suffer such persons to exceed and outrun us who are Christians? Let us mind, therefore, the principle that swayed Joseph when he said, under a very great temptation, considering his low and obnoxious condition, Shall I do this great wickedness and sin against God? Genesis 39 verse 9 And let us imitate David, who set the Lord always before him, and looked upon him as present at his right hand, to the end that he might never be moved, but be encouraged still to trust in him. Psalm 16 verse 8 For we are, to ever, we are ever to remember that our secret as well as our public sins are set in the light of God's countenance, Psalm 90, verse 8, seeing that the darkness hides us no more from God than the meridian light of the sun. Psalm 139, verse 12. But we must consider likewise that we have not only a constant witness and inspector of our actions without us, but one within us, even our own conscience, which doth excuse or accuse us according as we behave and act. As one says well on this head, what avails it to have no witness of our actions while we have a conscience that keeps an exact register of all we do? Only we must remember that this is but a secondary witness, for if our heart condemn us, God is greater than our heart and knows all things. 1 John 3 verse 20 And now, my friends, I have done with what I had to say to the three considerations from which I propose to recommend and enforce this great duty of improving our time. And I leave it to you to consider whether what I have said be not sufficient this way, through the blessing of God, and your pains and concern to apply, yourselves, to, apply to yourselves what has been said. Therefore, in the second place, I proceed to direct you how you may attain rightly and successfully to improve your time to the best advantage, as ye are Christians and accountable creatures. And this I shall do by proposing three rules, which will take in all that is necessary or useful this way. Though the first rule is the principal and only direct one, which doth take in the whole of our duty this way, the second and third being only subservient unto this, though exceedingly useful, if not necessary also, in their places. The first rule is this, that ye take heed that ye lose not your time and the opportunities and seasons thereof by sin and vanity, but that it be always filled up with the conscientious and diligent discharge of all necessary duties. 
This being, as I said already, the principal rule in order to the regulation of our time, and being so contrived as to direct us, both negatively and positively, as to what we are to avoid and what we are to do, I shall, accordingly, consider it distinctly in both the parts of it. The first part of this rule teaches us how time is lost, and what we are therefore to avoid in order to the right improvement of it. And it is necessary to premise this before we consider the other part, for we can only then apply ourselves to fill up our time wisely in the performance of those duties in the discharge whereof the redemption and improvement of time consist, when we apprehend what those things are which are detrimental and hurtful to our souls, both here and hereafter. Now in the general, we are to take care to rescue our time out of the hands of those two grand robbers that thieve it away from us, that is, sin and vanity. For we are carefully to avoid the misspending of our time by thinking, doing, or speaking what is sinful in itself. So we are to take heed of such things which, though they are not simply sinful in themselves, are yet such trivial matters or by-concerns as become sinful to us when we spend too much time upon them or mind them as if they were our most weighty and principal business. But because those things that are evil and sinful in themselves, such as blasphemies and lies, immorality and profaneness, ought not to be so much as named among Christians or have a moment's time allowed them, so as to be entertained or thought upon with delight or design, far less brought forth in life and action, we shall therefore pass by these wholly at present in order to consider those things that, though lawful in themselves, ought not to be so minded as to take up all or most of our time. Allow me then to give you my advice in these following things. Be not too prodigal of your time in the gratification of your senses and the services of your body. Let the cultivation and adorning of your souls take up more of your time than the clothing and dressing of your bodies. Be not, hurried, be not buried in sleep and sloth too long while time is so short and uncertain and ye have so much business to fill it up with. Neither do ye allow yourselves more time than is necessary or convenient for the feeding and pampering of your bodies. Be not like them, therefore, who are so severely reproved by God for living sensually in this world when they ought to have minded higher things of whom this sad character is given. That they put away far from them the evil day, that they lay upon beds of ivory and did eat the lambs out of the flock and the calves out of the stall, chanting at the sound of the veal, drinking wine out of bowls and anointing themselves with the chiefest ointments, but that in the meantime they were altogether unmindful of the state of the church and no ways grieved for the afflictions of Joseph. Amos 6, verse 3 through 6. Therefore, as the, the Apostle exhorts, let us walk honestly as in the day, or clear sunshine of the gospel, not in rioting or in dancings and drunkenness, not in chambering and wantonness, nor in strife and envying. For these things, says he, are the making provision for the flesh to fulfill the lusts thereof. Romans 13, verse 13 and 14. Spend not too much of your precious time in divertive exercises and recreations. We may indeed use these not only lawfully, but profitably, both with respect to the health and strength of the body and the vigor even of the mind, which being unbended for a while with innocent amusements, 
will be in better case to return again to close thinking. But we must not make recreation our business as too many do, who are so intoxicated with the secret witchery of gaming as to have their minds rendered almost incapable of any close application to serious and important matters. Spend not too much of your time in company and discourse unless business oblige you to do so. The company of atheistical and wicked men, especially if they be witty and of an engaging temper, carries commonly an infection with it, and their discourse, discourse breathes a secret and insinuating poison that everyone has not a strong enough antidote in his nature to resist. And though the company we associate ourselves with be good, yet we are to remember the old saying, that friends are frequently the, theme, the thieves that rob us of our time, the commodity that, of all others, we are to be most parsim parsimonious of, seeing we can never retrieve its loss. To visit friends is often a great duty, but is frequently to the hurt both of the visitors and visited that these are made. Time is commonly lost this way to no purpose, so the discourses that are the entertainment of most companies are too often mere vanity, if not worse. For it is too customary at such times to give way to foolish jesting and talking, or to censorious reflections upon other persons. There is an innocent freedom indeed, and facetiousness in discourse, which is both allowable and pleasant. But alas, how soon doth this degenerate if great care be not taken to keep our minds in a right pose, in a right poise. And if I appear to be to any to be rigid in what I may say on this head, let it be remembered that Christ has forewarned us that we must give an account of every idle word as well as unwarrantable action in the day of judgment. Matthew 12, verse 36 As therefore we are to avoid moroseness on the one hand, so we are to take care that we tire not our friends by too frequent or too long visits. There are indeed some such friends in the world, though very rare to be found, who the more they are together, do the more profit and love one another. But as to ordinary friends, the case is quite otherwise, in relation to whom Solomon gives this wise advice, Withdraw thy foot from thy neighbor's house, lest he be at least weary of thee, and so hate thee. Proverbs 25.17 That is, according to the gloss of some upon the words, Make thyself precious, wear not out every man's threshold by obtruding thyself upon them, Neither make thyself vulgar and cheap as a mean commodity that is every man's money. But remember also that ye may be guilty of misspending your time in vain and unprofitable musings as well as in vain discourse. Idle thoughts are as foolish a misspending of time as idle words. For every sort of thinking and meditating is not judicious no more than holy. And though a man think not upon his lusts, he may think very impertinently and consequently, sinfully. The fault and weakness of plebeian, but of learned heads who misspend time frequently, as much as any other sort of men, upon their difficiles nuga, their useless yet painful curiosities and niceties. This was the custom of the learned doctors of old Athens, who spent their days in almost nothing else but telling or hearing some new notion, scheme, or theory, and then disputing pro et contra, for and against it. 
Acts 17, verse 21. But while they were earnest to dispute about forma substantialis, universal et parte, re, fuga, vacu, apathies, the possibility of motion, and such like nuga and whims, they forgot God and solid religion, and were skeptics, or superstitiously ignorant, for ye may interpret the words either way, that in the midst of their multitude of gods they were willing to erect one altar more with this inscription, to the unknown God, Acts 17.23. It is true indeed there are many curiosities of this kind that a wise man may improve to great advantage, but when they are made our main or only business and study, instead of being paragons or by-studies, we are certainly far out of the road of true wisdom. What profit has the metaphysician in abstracting from all particular beings that he may define ends generically as unum verum bonum, while he is ignorant of him that is truly such? To how little purpose at length will the mathematician find he has studied in order to adjust and determine the proportion of points, lines, sides, and angles if he neglect the proportions of piety and virtue? What will it avail the astronomer to see the planets through a tube if he sh falls short of the happy world at last that is above all these? Is any man the better for being able to adjust and reconcile the Egyptian, Chaldee, and Grecian dynasties by reducing all the different eras of nations to the Julian period while he neglects to number his own days so as to apply his heart to true wisdom? And lastly, what advantage has any man by being able to speak all the languages in the world while he worships and praises God in none of them. Nay, I tell you further that a man may even misspend his time in the service and worship of God, circumstantially considered. For though we worship God, yet what advantage can we reap by it if we do so ignorantly, or hypocritically, or customarily and merely for the fashion, or profanely and irreverently, or dull and heartlessly? Nay, we may lose our labor this way also, when by this we thrust out more immediately incumbent and necessary duties, or when we neglect the performance of this, till we be altogether unfit for it, offering thus to the Lord a corrupt thing while we have a male in our flock. And if thus we may misspend our time, how much more are we like to do so while the cares of the world and the inordinate desire of what we call its pleasures, profits, and honors jostle out religion both from our thoughts and lives. Solomon adviseth us not to labor to be rich, but he immediately subjoins, Cease from thine own wisdom. Proverbs 23, verse 4. Whereby he insinuates that a man must be mortified to his carnal and worldly ratiocinations, and taught by the Spirit of God to know the true value of things, before he can possibly learn this lesson from him. However, he positively determines these two things, that he that hasteth to be rich hath an evil eye, and that he that does so shall not be found innocent. Proverbs 28, verse 22 and verse 20. Mottos that all men might find it convenient to write on the heads of their books of accounts, 
And if Solomon's words have little effect upon you, consider what a greater than Solomon says of a covetous or anxiously solicitous disposition and practice in the sixth chapter of Matthew, where he represents and condemns it as unchristian and heathenish, and as unreasonable and pernicious. And after all, remember these serious and pungent words of his, What is a man profiteth if he gain the whole world and lose his own soul? Or what can a man give in exchange for his soul? Matthew 16, verse 26 And now I hope I have said enough as to the things we ought to avoid, if we would rightly improve our time. But seeing it is not sufficient to know how time is lost, unless we are unless we know also what we are to be occupied about, and wherein the best and wisest disposal of our time stands, therefore we must further consider the great and necessary duties with which we ought to fill up the seasons and vacuities of our life. And therefore I proceed now to the second part of this great and principal direction concerning the improvement of our time, which is this, that we take care to fill it up with the conscientious and diligent discharge of all necessary duties. And here, though in the general we cannot but know that our time is wholly to be taken up in getting and doing good, yet we must remember that it is only in relation to time that we are to consider our duties in this place. And therefore I am only to consider here those great and necessary duties which are always obligatory upon us, and the neglect of which is inseparable from the misimprovement of time. For it cannot be supposed that I should so much as hint all those things that come under the general notion of duty, or consider those things which particular circumstances and emergence render obligatory to us, or such duties which are called relative from the stations we are in and the relations we bear to others. There are therefore a few things only which I shall recommend to you as altogether useful and necessary, and which of us and which none of us can ever plead exemption from. And in the first place, let me beseech you to improve your time by frequent, diligent, and serious reading and studying the Holy Scriptures, in the first book of which you will find your, you will find your minds led up to the first antiquities which no other book beside can furnish you with any just account of. There we see the origin of man and the world, man's primeval state when first created, the original of sin, death, and misery, the submersion of the first race of men by the great deluge which heathen antiquities speak of only as through a cloud, the first spring and dawning of mercy and hope to lapsed man, the succession of the first and most primitive church, and the beginning and progress of Gentile idolatry, superstition, and wickedness, together with the first original of nations, cities, arts, governments, languages, and in all these the superintending providence of God in its justness and goodness, wisdom and steadiness. And by this knowledge we bring back, as it were, all past time, and make it our own as to our profit and advantage. In the other books of Moses, we have an account of God's erecting a poor, oppressed people to be a church, and God's peculiar possession, wherein we see his wonderful appearance for them by signs and miracles, his strange and unusual way with them in all their journey, in trying, feeding, and preserving them, his giving them laws, ecclesiastical, 
moral, and political, his wrapping up most profound mysteries under ceremonies and customs, and his bringing them into a noble country with power and glory, destroying their enemies before them, together with innumerable observable occurrences and theoretical and useful things to be taken notice of therein. The historical part of the Old Testament, that follows that of the law, as the Jews call it, gives us a relation of most admirable and great revolutions and transactions as ever fell out in the world, wherein we may observe the various and yet uniform steps of divine providence in governing the world and the church, God's trying and yet rewarding the righteous, his permitting sin and yet punishing sinners. In all which occurrences we have the best examples that can be to be imitated by us, and an account of the worst also, that we may avoid such pernicious courses. The book of Job is a mirror, wherein we may learn what afflictions the best men are liable unto, and what reproaches they may unjustly fall under, even by good men like themselves, through mistake and infirmity. As also how we ought to behave in the time of calamity, and what the end of the Lord at length usually is. The Psalms are the most excellent model of practical and experimental piety, and the best prayer book and directory for devotion that ever the world was blessed with. The Proverbs of Solomon are the most excellent and refined ethics that were ever published or will ever be. Ecclesiastes is the noblest picture and demonstration of the world's vanity, and Solomon's song the most, spir- the most spiritual pastoral, the finest allegory, and the divinest poetical description of the love between Christ and devout souls that ever saw the light. The prophetical writings give us the noblest and distinctest idea of God's government of nations and the righteousness and equity of all his providences and administrations, besides innumerable other lessons to be learned from thence. And as for the New Testament... The first thing that occurs to us is the most excellent part of the whole Bible. I mean the fourfold history of our blessed Savior. Oh, let your thoughts dwell long and strike deep here, for all the historical passages of the Gospels, all the wise and sage parables to be found there, all the miracles wrought, all the prophecies mentioned, all the truths revealed, and all the counsels and exhortations there given, I say all these are as so much rich veins of what is more precious than the finest gold, and admirable and useful above all thought. The book of the Acts of the Apostles gives us a noble and impartial account of the beginning and progress of the gospel, and the first settlement of the church, wherein we have a naked and clear view of Christianity in its purest and primitive dress, together with some most profitable examples and useful discourses. The apostolical epistles give us a full and copious account of the religion of the blessed Jesus, both in its principles and practice, its original and design, so that these are sufficient alone, if rightly understood, to enlighten our minds, to influence our affections and desires, and to regulate our lives and conversations. And the book of Revelation, though dark and enigmatical, represents to us in an august and lofty manner, the rectorship of our Lord Jesus in governing the world, overruling and disposing the designs and actions of men, and making all things at length work together for the illustration of his own glory 
and his people's good. Thus we see something of the special properties of the several parts of the scripture, and what excellent things may be learned from thence. But let, but let us consider also those properties that are common to the whole Bible and every part, part of it. Let us therefore look upon all the books that compose this sacred volume as divinely inspired and as designed in all respects for our profit and edification. 2 Timothy 3 verse 16 Therefore let us read and study them, not as the word of men, but as they are indeed the word of God, that is, so as to prize and value them according to their worth, to love and delight in them, to praise God for them, to meditate upon them as men, not as children, and to conform our lives wholly to them. And in order to become thus the humble, impartial, and obedient scholars of Christ, let me put you in mind of one thing, than which nothing is more neglected, and yet nothing more necessary in order to profit truly by the Bible, namely, that ye have a care of laying down any opinion or scheme of opinions in matters religious, previously to your having impartially examined the sacred scriptures in such matters. For they that do so come not to be taught of God, but to dictate to the Almighty, and are not afraid often to to wire-draw the sacred text, in order to force it to speak, not what it really does, but what they would have it to do, as best suits with their prejudices, passions, and party designs, that I say not lusts also. Therefore let me desire you, as I have often done from the pulpit, to make the Bible itself, and particularly the New Testament, your chief, and in a proper sense only, system, of system confession of faith, and creed, for whatever excellency there is in any human composures of this kind, we are to own them no further than we find them to agree and harmonize with the divine oracles. In the next place, let us improve our time by frequent, serious, and close meditation on divine and profitable things. Let the character of the blessed man, Psalm 1, verse 2 and 3, be ours by our meditating on the laws and truths of God day and night. For to what purpose do we read the scriptures and other good books if we be not at pains to penetrate into the things therein contained? Now it were endless and in some sense impossible to name all those things that may be profitably thought upon. But perhaps it may not be amiss to suggest to you the principal heads of sacred theology by which, as so many avenues, ye may attain mentally to converse with God and truth. In the first place, then, meditate on God himself, his attributes, works, and word, and the blessed persons of the Godhead. Then think on man in the first innocent state, in his lapsed condition and begun recovery, and on thyself particularly, thy natures, thy thy nature, thy faculties, thy state, thy faults, thy end, thy duties, and thy privileges and advantages. Meditate often on Jesus Christ, his person, his properties, his offices, his merits, his sufferings, his conquest, his business and work now in heaven, and his management of the church on earth and the world in general. Then think of the Holy Spirit, his office, work, and influences, and let the church also be considered in its obligations, ordinances, sufferings, progress, and victory, And think likewise of the particular state of the saints of God on earth, 
their temptations, the principles by which they are acted, their conversation, and the promises made them. Hence, let your minds be led on to contemplate the great blessings of true religion, such as conversion, justification, adoption, sanctification, peace of conscience, joy in the Holy Ghost, communion with God, the prelevations of heaven, and final perseverance. And then let your thoughts terminate upon what we call the last things. Think, therefore, on death, its certainty, yet the uncertainty of the time of it, the great change it brings upon us, how terrible it will be to be unprepared for it, and the happiness of being ready for so great a change. Then think upon the dissolution of this world, when the elements shall melt with fervent heat, and this vast pile of our planetary world become one great bonfire. And from thence, let your minds contemplate the great day of judgment, those grand assizes where all mankind must be impartially judged and sentence be pronounced upon them accordingly. And after all, let your thoughts pass beyond the limits of time and step into the eternal state. There, go down to the infernal prison for a while and view the horrors of the place, the frightful aspects of the company, and the intenseness and perpetuity of the torments. Then mount the steep ascent and soar aloft upon the wings of contemplation to the blissful regions of the celestial paradise. There, satiate your thoughts with the pleasures and beauty of the place, the felicity and joys of that state and government, the excellency of the company, the glory of the discoveries made there, the noble employment that takes them up, and the eternity and immutability of all these. Think then upon these few hints, my friends, where there are almost as many subjects as words, and ye can never want matter for your thoughts to work upon. And now, seeing all our study and meditation must be so managed that we may receive some real and abiding advantage, let us ever call ourselves to a serious and impartial account as to the spending of our time. For how can we satisfy ourselves without conversing with our own souls in order to know how it is with them? And how can we attain to know ourselves if we never examine and try how it is with us? If merchants and men of business are so careful to set down everything in their journals and books of account that they may be able exactly to balance what they call their debit and credit, their losses and gains, ought not Christians to mind their eternal concerns with the like exactness and accuracy? How wonderful does Seneca speak on this head when he tells us that, in imitation of one sextius whom he highly commends, he had been accustomed to examine himself every night. When at night, says he, the candle is out, and all is still and quiet, then do I look back upon and search all the day past by measuring and running over all I have thought, said, or done. I hide nothing from myself. I overlook and pass by nothing. I say to myself, So and so thou hast done unadvisedly. Do so no more. And again I ask myself, What evil have I healed? What vice have I resisted? What passion have I moderated? What lesson have I learned? And what good have I done? And oh, says he, what a sweet sleep follows after this recognition of a man's self when one is conscious of his impartiality and seriousness in the review and censure of himself and his own manners. 
And to this purpose we find an excellent direction in the golden verses, as they are called, of old Pythagoras, which begins thus, the sense of which I render thus, Before thine eyes to slumber sweet give place, be sure the past day's journal first to trace. Survey thy steps and actions all, then say, Which good, which bad, how ordered were they. Oh, then, my friends, let it not be said of us that we live in the neglect of this duty, lest heathens rise up in judgment against us and condemn us. For since we are not born for ourselves only, let us be concerned to promote the good of others also. Let us therefore improve time by being useful in our stations to the Church of God and good men, and to all as far as we can. For so we are obliged, as we are members of communities, cities, and nations, and as we are inhabitants of the world, and in order to be thus useful, let us set before ourselves the glorious example of Christ, whose meat and drink it was to do the will of his heavenly Father, and who went about always doing good. And therefore let us be ashamed to live as useless plants in the world, which do only cumber the ground. And in order to perform all these things aright, and so to improve our time to the best advantage, let us be sure to spend as much of our time in prayer as possibly we can. For as it is thus that we attain to most immediate and direct communion with God, so it is this way that we attain to be strengthened and directed in the performance of all the duties we are obliged to be taken up in. Therefore let us remember that it is not without just ground that we are commanded to pray always, Ephesians 6 verse 18, and to pray without ceasing, 1 Thessalonians 5.17 The sense of which expressions I take to be this, that as we are to keep up stated times of solemn prayer to God and to have recourse to Him in a more special manner upon extraordinary emergencies and occurrences, in order to be peculiarly directed and assisted then from God, so we are ever to keep ourselves as much as possible we can in a praying frame, and for this end to fill up all the vacuities of other affairs and studies with ejaculatory prayers and breathings. But besides all these things, there is one thing further that I never found any writer take notice of, that I look upon to be the principal design of such expressions, and this is, that we be careful to prosecute the design of our prayers from one time of our life to another, waiting for the answer of them, and improving the same in praise when, we re when received. For example, if a Christian pray long for a full victory over such or such a temptation or lust, let him prosecute this design in all his prayers until he receive an answer, which when he has got, let him turn this from the catalogue of his petitions to that of his thanksgivings, and so let him act also with respect to mercies to be received, promises to be fulfilled, and miscries to be adverted to be averted. And thus I have at length finished the first and principal rule I had to propose to you with respect to the improvement of time in both the parts thereof. And now I am to hint you two more, which are only subservient ones, though at the same time worthy of your most serious thoughts. The second rule, therefore, is that in order to the right improvement and disposal of time, 
we do both dedicate ourselves solemnly to God and as explicitly as we can in order to spend our lives wholly in His service and be concerned in order to this, to keep a secret and exact register or diary of all our own actions and the providences of God in relation to us. But seeing I have hinted something in relation to both the parts of this rule in another discourse, that is, that concerning the ministerial work, I shall not therefore trouble you with anything more upon either of these heads. Only let me say this one thing further in relation to the keeping of a diary or private register, that every man must be left to his own discretion as to the manner and method of adjusting those things that occur to him in his life. As therefore some may think it best to set things down according to the series of the time they fall out in, so others may look upon the method of heads or commonplaces to be the best. And if any serious person shall think this last way the best, for as to the first, the method cannot be missed, he may perhaps find these heads not unreasonable or useless, that is, that after a short series of his life, to be further continued, he proceeds in this order. 1. To consider God's providence to him in adapting and disposing of him for particular ends, agreeably to the faculties of his soul and constitution of his body, together with his external circumstances in relation to both. 2. What his conversion has been with the time and manner of it. 3. How far and in what way he has been led into covenant with God with the renovations of the same. 4. What crosses and troubles he has met with and how far these have been improved and sanctified. 5. The dangers, spiritual or temporal, he has been delivered from. 6. The sins he is most inclinable unto naturally, and those he has been most guilty of and overcome by. 7. How frequently, in what manner, and upon what occasions he has been deserted by his God, and so far as he can conclude, for what ends these have happened to him. 8. What evidence he has had of the wrath and displeasure of God upon the account of sin. 9. What intimations he has met with of the love and kindness of his heavenly Father. 10. What temptations, inward or outward, he has been most assaulted by, and what he has found to be the best antidote and relief against these. 11. What observations and experience he has met with to confirm him in the belief of the Christian religion as to the being of God, the divinity of Christ, and the existence of invisible powers. 12. What observable and remarkable things have happened to him in his business, studies, or converse with men, that he may be of use to himself or others, as to life and conversation in the world. 13. What has particularly what has occurred to him in the remarkable turns and changes of his life, in health and sickness. 14. What intimacy, familiarity, and communion God has graciously admitted him into with himself, and what answers and returns of prayer God has granted him. And 15. What special and peculiar distinguishing circumstances he has been under, wherein the footsteps of a peculiar conduct have been conspicuous to him. Under these heads, I humbly suppose all things may be regularly regularly disposed, 
that can be thought necessary to compose a private Christian's register, though I presume not to dictate to any man, but leave every one to follow his own method. The third and last rule is this, that, in order to the right regulation of time, we set down some short, rational, and natural directory, according to which we may be enabled and assisted rightly to improve our time. But seeing everyone is to compose this according to his own circumstances, there is no man that can justly prescribe to another in this matter. Nay, there is none that can set to himself such a directory as to all particulars that he can be supposed to be tied up to at all times. Since the providence of God is so various this way that our circumstances render our condition, and consequently our duty, almost as different as the weather is. And therefore a spiritual prudence is that which is to everyone the great directory of his life. For when the providence of God renders our particular rules and methods impractical, unlawful, or inconvenient, it is both our duty and wisdom to fall in with the present circumstances of things, rather than with our own arbitrary determinations, seeing then the state of the question is whether God's method or ours should be followed. All therefore that I shall propose to you here is the consideration of three things, which are easily minded and may be put into practice every day, whatever our circumstances are. First, when ye awake in the morning, let this be among your first thoughts. How shall I spend this day to best advantage, for the honor of God and my own good? And when ye have considered what is most proper to promote these ends, then firmly propose to yourselves your business throughout the day, and fixedly resolve upon acting so, and accordingly proceed and fall to work. Second, in the middle of all your business or studies, allow yourselves some time of breathing, in order to reflect upon these two things that is, what ye are, and what ye do, putting these frequently to yourselves by way of query, thus, what am I? That is, am I sure I am in favor with God? Am I indeed regenerated? Am I spiritual in thought, affection, and design? And again, what do I? That is, am I employed as I ought to be? Are my ends right? Are the means I make use of lawful and proper? Are my studies or my business such as I ought now to be occupied about? Do I behave all respects as one that is journeying? Do I behave in all respects as one that is journeying towards the better country? Third, in the evening sleep not before ye have examined yourselves as to the actions and occurrences of the past day. But having spoken already to this duty, I shall only add here that it will be of great use for you to examine yourselves as to two things by way of question to yourselves. Thus, what has God's providence been to me this day? What have I seen or heard that deserves special observation and improvement? What mercies have I received? What troubles have I met with? What dangers have I escaped? Did God assist me or desert me in my devotions and business? Have I learned nothing new from his holy word? Did he seem to receive or shut out my prayers? And again, what has been my way towards God? Have I done nothing to dishonor him or to discredit my profession? Have I acted so as to approve myself to my God 
in thought and design, as well as in word and action? Wherein have I failed in my duty? What have I done for religion? And what for my own good or the good of others? And what have I done that I ought to beg the pardon of? And what have I to praise God for? Now, my friends, I hope these three generals are easy both to be remembered and practiced. For as for the particular questions I have suggested, they are only proposed to show more fully the design of the general ones, and therefore everyone may pick and choose, or vary from these as his own circumstances do require, and his prudence will direct. I only desire you, then, to remember the three heads themselves, with relation to the morning, the day, and the evening as they are comprehended in these three mnemonical words, propose, reflect, and examine. And thus I have at length come to the end of that which I had to say to you upon this great and practical head of improving time to the best advantage, which I conclude with these few watchwords. Spend not your time so as to be afterwards obliged bitterly to repent of what ye have done. Spend no time on that which you cannot review and look back upon with comfort. Spend no time so as you dare not to pray for a blessing from God upon what you do. Spend no time without some respect to God's glory or your own and others' good. And be sure so to spend and improve your time that your great work may be done before your life end, that when your few days are lived over, you may joyfully enter into a happy eternity. Now, having finished all I had to say by way of improvement of the apocalyptical thoughts I have presented you with, I desire you may candidly interpret my design and favorably construe my performance. And one thing I hope you will remember, that seeing this discourse is by way of epistle, I have therefore used an epistolary freedom, both in what I have said and in the way of writing, not tying myself up to so close a method as in other discourses though I have not altogether neglected even that. But if I have failed in any respect, remember further that I write to those I look upon to be my true, good, and kind friends. Let therefore the name and ties of friendship plead for me where ye may discern my infirmities and induce you to pass a favorable sentence upon my attempt to assist you in the way to heaven. And now that I write to such dear friends and have mentioned the ties of friendship, let me beg of you, that you would make it your business to live together as such. For there is nothing Christ has enjoined us more than mutual love, insomuch as he has made it the badge of our Christianity, when he tells us, By this shall all men know that ye are my disciples, if ye have love one to another. John 13, verse 35. And therefore, Ephesians 2, 14, 15, and 17, etc., it was one great end of his coming into the world, to introduce a divine and universal friendship among men. For as the devil promotes his kingdom in the world by dissensions, emulations, hatred and malice, so our blessed master carries on his by union, gentleness, peaceableness and universal kindness, love and charity. But besides a general friendship, it would be of great use to cultivate a peculiar one with one or more whose disposition is most agreeable to ours. And seeing there is little of this now to be found in this selfish selfish age, let me give you such a description of it as may make you fall in love with it. And if this appear too florid, 
Remember that as the subject itself is so, it is part of a youthful composure of mine in a letter to a worthy friend who had desired my thoughts upon this head many years ago. Quote, True friendship is a divine and spiritual relation of minds, a union of souls, a marriage of hearts, and a harmony of designs and affections, which being founded on a known agreeableness and entered into by a mutual hearty consent, groweth up into the purest kindness and most endearing love, maintaining itself by the openest freedom, the warmest sympathy, and the closest secrecy. And such friends are as twins, every way alike, or like sweet flowers, agreeing in beauty, though perhaps differing in color, like the rose and lily, the primrose and violet, twisted round one another and mixing both colors and smells. Or they may be compared to two pleasant rivulets, flowing from one spring and fountain, though separated perhaps by some unlucky rising of the ground, yet meeting again in some kind and flowery mead, which they bless by their cheerful and gentle meanders. And it may be thence separated again to some distance, at some distance, where they glide along silently, murmuring now and then to one another, and mutually complaining of the rude banks that obstruct their joining, until at length, having run their full course, and becoming one stream, they pour themselves forth into the great ocean itself, and become one with it also. So that, like the rest of the bitter sweets of this life, friendship has its ups and downs until it flow into heaven, from whence it took its rise, which is the consummation of all divine friendships, and where all true friends do at length happily meet, never to part. End of quote. And now, my friends, I shall conclude this long epistle in the words of a famous doctor and father of the ancient church. Quote, Learn, O faithful and religious men, and carefully apprehend the design of the gospel polity, for which end study to conquer fleshly lusts, to be humble in heart, pure in mind, and masters of your passions. If ye are called to suffer, act heroically, and do something over and above mere passiveness for the honor of your Lord. If ye are unjustly treated, evidence that ye are not contentious. If hated, love your enemies. If persecuted, endure it. And if reviled, answer no man otherwise than by prayer and good wishes. Die to sin, crucify your affections for God, and cast all your care upon your Lord and Master, that thus ye may at length reach the glorious place where millions of angels and the glorious assembly of the firstborn are praising God, and where the holy apostles, prophets, patriarchs, martyrs, and all the righteous are. To this blessed society let us labor and pray to be joined through Jesus Christ our Lord, to whom be the glory forever. End of quote. Now that both ye and I may attain through grace to be thus happy, is and shall be the serious, fervent, and constant prayer of my very dear friends, yours to love and serve you in the gospel of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, Robert Fleming. London, January 1st, 1707, being the first day both of the year and century. A Postscript containing a short account of the first principles of the apocalyptical interpretations advanced in the preceding discourse.
After I had finished the foregoing discourse, and that all the sheets were almost printed, I was earnestly urged by a friend to say something to secure the foundation I go upon, especially because the learning of Grotius and Dr. Hammond had influenced many to follow another way of interpreting the revelation, as the refutation of Mr. Baxter had swayed others to think well of the same. And when I urged that Dr. Moore, in his Mystery of Iniquity, and Dr. Cressener, in his demonstration of the first principles of the, of the Protestant interpretations of the Apocalypse, had done this sufficiently already, he replied that these books, books were both vol, voluminous and dark, and not easy to be purchased by everyone, and that therefore some account of this matter at the time seemed to be necessary. I urged many things against this, as that this advice came too late, and that, should I contract never so much, it would swell this part of my book too much to keep a due proportion with the other discourses, and indeed make the whole too bulky. But after all, importunity and the respect I bore my friend prevailed with me to say something to all those things that he thought I ought to promise. Therefore, not to spend any longer time in giving the reasons why I did not speak to these things before in their proper place, or why I do so now, I shall give my thoughts of this book and the first principles of the right interpretation of it, in some propositions which do gradually lay the foundation of why, what I advanced before. First Proposition the Revelation was written by the Apostle John and is a sacred and canonical book of the New Testament. I hope there is no Christian that will dispute the truth of this proposition with me, for besides that the style of John may be easily traced in this book, notwithstanding the difference of the subject from that which he wrote of in his Gospel and Epistles, he does frequently make mention of himself, and that with such peculiar circumstances as agree with none but the Apostle, as we see in Revelation 1, verse 1, 2, 4, and 9, see also chapter 21, verse 2, and chapter 22, verse 28. I know indeed that some of the ancients doubted of this, as Caius, a Latin father mentioned by Eusebius, in history, Lib. 3, Cap. 28, and Dionysius of Alexandria, who made a great noise against it for a while, as we see in Eusebius also. But yet even this man desires that he owns it to be a sacred book, though not written by the Apostle John, wherein he speaks what we must look upon to be altogether absurd. For if St. John be not the author, it must be an imposture, seeing his name is inserted in it, being the, in it as being the penman. So that if it, not, if it be not St. John's, it is no sacred book, or if it be a sacred book, the author is none but the beloved apostle. But the weakness and inconsistency of this deny his reasons against this book, which are sufficiently, though briefly exposed, by Mr. Dupin, both in his preliminary dissertation to his Bibliothèque des Atures Ecclesiastiques and in his History of the Canon of the Books of Scripture. And if this were any argument against the divinity of this book, that some persons have doubted of it, or denied it to be canonical, there is hardly one book in the New Testament that would stand the test, seeing we find in the ancient church history that there have been not only particular men, but even sects of them, that have accepted some against one book and some against others. 
And we know that the epistle of James and Jude and the second and third epistles of John and that admirable epistle to the Hebrews have been controverted as well as the apocalypse of the authority of which neither Papist nor Protestant, Grecian nor Armenian Christians doubt at this day. And as all Christians do now acquiesce in the Revelation as a canonical book, so excepting those I mentioned, and the heretics called Ologians, all the eminent fathers of the Church received it of old. Justin Martyr, Irenaeus, Tertullian, Clemens Alexandrinus, Origen, and Eusebius himself. Nay, all the other fathers agree in this also, namely, Epiphanius, Victorinus Theophilus, Cyprian, Methodius, Jerome, and other authors quoted by Eusebius, Epiphanius, and Jerome, namely, Melito, Hippolytus, Victorinus, etc. But for my own part, were all these authorities wanting, there is that in this book itself that would enforce me to own it as divine. For besides the augustness of its style, the wisdom of its contexture, and the purity of its design and counsels, there is something that I want a name for that commands my belief and veneration, and insinuates itself into my affection and conscience, as if Christ himself breathed something divine in every line. But the clear view of the fulfilling of the several parts of its prophecy is an argument that even several other books of the New Testament want. Second Proposition The book of the Revelation of John was written after the destruction of Jerusalem. The notion of Grotius, upon which his interpretation of the Apocalypse is founded, is this that the seven kings or heads of the beast mentioned in Revelation 17.10 are not to be understood of seven several forms of government, but of seven particular emperors, namely Claudius, Nero, Galba, Otho, Vitellius, Vespasian, and Titus, and that Domitian is the eighth, who was of the seventh, because, as he pretends, he governed during his father's absence. The foundation which he lays for the probation of this is that John was banished into Patmos in the reign of Claudius, but that though he saw his visions then, he did not write them till Vespasian's time. For he must make this last supposition as well as the first, else his notion would be condemned immediately, seeing it is said that five of these kings were fallen, Revelation 17.10. That is, says he in Hammond, when he wrote, not when he saw these visions. But how false this is, anybody may see with half an eye, seeing these words are not John's, but the angel's to him. And therefore, the defenders of this opinion must find out five emperors that were fallen before Claudius, if they will restrict these heads of the beast to particular men. For if the angel spake these words to John in the days of Claudius, they must relate to them that went before, or to none. This is enough to destroy this notion of theirs, and I know not how it is possible for any of their admirers to solve their credit this way. But seeing the principal thing they found upon is this, that John saw the apocalyptical visions in the days of Claudius, and that so all, or at least most of the revelation relates to things that fell out before the destruction of Jerusalem, I shall say something further to disprove this assertion, and to confirm the verity of our proposition. 
Now, there are only two things adduced by Grotius and Hammond to prove that John was in Patmos in Claudius' reign. The first is that Claudius raised up persecution against both Jews and Christians, and that being the first persecutor, it is probable that John was banished at that time. The second is that Epiphanius does expressly assert that it was by Claudius that John was banished to Patmos. As to the first of these, it is nothing but a supposition without any proof, for we have no account, either in the Acts of the Apostles or in any other writer, that Claudius did ever persecute either Jews or Christians. And Lactantius does expressly assert that no emperor did persecute the Christians before Nero. It is true, Suetonius says, Claudius Judas impulsor cresto tumultuens Roma expolit. And Luke tells us that Claudius banished the Jews from Rome, which occasioned Aquila and Priscilla and other Christian Jews to retire from Rome. But neither of them say that he persecuted the Christians or even the Jews. Now, as for the expression of Suetonius, impulsor cresto or Christo, the meaning must be this that the Jews that did not believe, going about to stir up the government at Rome, as they did everywhere else, as is plain from the book of Acts, against the Christians, and appearing against them in a tumultuous manner upon the occasion of Christ, complaints might probably be brought to the emperor, who no doubt, upon this account, banished all of that nation from Rome, so that Suetonius, having a confused notion of Christ, might easily be induced to express himself this way. And now that this was all that Claudius did against the Christians is plain to me from one argument that has escaped Dr. Moore, but is to me unanswerable, taken from the 18th chapter of the Acts, where, after the sacred historian had taken notice of Claudius' banishing the Jews out of Rome, and of Aquila and Priscilla's being lately come upon that account from Italy to Corinth, he tells us of Paul's lodging with them because he was of the same occupation. But being pressed in spirit to preach Christ, upon the coming of Silas and Timothy from Macedonia, he goes into their synagogue and reasons with the Jews and proselytes there upon this head. And having converted some, particularly Crispus, the chief ruler of the synagogue, and Justus, in whose house he afterwards disputed, Crispus no doubt being thrown out of his office, and Sosthenes put in his stead, and Paul continuing to preach in Justus's house, which joined to the synagogue, the Jews are incensed to such a degree as to rise tumultuously against Paul. Sosthenes, therefore, the new chief ruler of the synagogue, and the rest of the unbelieving Jews make an insurrection and seize upon Paul, carry him to the judgment seat before the proconsul Gallio, that excellent Roman, the elder brother of Seneca. He tells the Jews that if Paul or any other man were guilty of what was lewd, wicked, or unjust, that in that case he was obliged to punish such persons according to the, as the Roman law and justice did require. They accused Paul of nothing of that kind, but only of doctrinal matters relating to their own law and religion. He had nothing to do with them, and therefore he drove them all away and set Paul at liberty, which made the Gentiles fall upon Sosthenes, the chief author of this tumult, and beat him before the judgment seat, which Gallio permitted to be done and connived at, either as judging that he did deserve to be so treated, 
or as supposing it might prevent the Jews from acting so factiously and tumultuously again. Now, after this short but exact account of this history, it will be easy to see how precarious and groundless, nay false, Grotius's opinion is of a persecution being raised against Jews and Christians in the days of Claudius. For if there had been any such thing or any edict for it, how came Gallio to tolerate a public synagogue of the Jews and suffer Paul to preach openly? Or if the Christians were only ordered to be persecuted, why did not the Jews use this as reason of their accusing Paul, who, to be sure, wanted not a good will to have done so and were not ignorant that this would have been the main argument to prevail with the proconsul? And had there been any such edict, can we imagine that Gallio was ignorant of it? For so he must have been, seeing he tells the Jews that he had no orders to, orders to punish any man for his religion or sentiments that way, but only those that were guilty of wickedness or lewdness in life. And if any say that his temper was to care for none of these things, I answer, this expression may indeed denote his temper, but I suppose it speaks forth not only that, but his principle and sentiment, as judging it unrighteous to persecute or punish any man for mere opinion. But, whatever this had been, had there been any edict for persecuting the Jews or Christians, he durst not have neglected his orders, especially when the edict must have been so recent, and when he had what might have passed for a just reason of his punishing both the party accusing and the party accused, namely their disturbing, as he might have represented it, of the public peace. But indeed it is too plain to need any further proof that Claudius's banishing the Jews out of Rome was accompanied with no persecution either against them or against the Christians. And this Dr. Hammond confirms by what he says in his annotations on Acts 26.36, forgetting that this way he destroys his own foundation of interpreting the revelation, whereupon these words of Luke that Agrippa, Festus, and Bernice, and the rest of the company, after they had heard Paul's defense, did conclude that he had done nothing that deserved either death or imprisonment, the doctor observes that the reason why they did conclude so was because there had been as yet no edict emitted against the Christians by any of the emperors. And this was the reason also, says he, why Gallio, the proconsul of Achaia, said publicly that it was not for him to judge of things that the Roman laws had determined nothing about. For, continues the doctor, though Claudius had commanded the Jews to leave Italy, by which the Christian Jews were forced to go away also, not as they were Christians, but because they were Jews, yet there was no law made against Christians as such at this time. It is true, he says, that John was not only banished as Aquila and Priscilla were, but confined in the Isle of Patmos. But he should have given the reason why John was the only person persecuted. However, I shall examine this assertion and the reason that the doctor gives for it in other places of his annotations. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. You are welcome to make copies and give them to those in need. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. It is likely that the sermon or book that you just listened to is also available on cassette or video, or as a printed book or booklet. 
our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.